Hi, this is Eileen McDonald, Editorial Director of RISE with our RISE radio podcast. And joining me today um, is Gabriel McLamory, the Senior Health Policy Consultant for Florida Blue's Marketplace Business, and Josh Weisbrod, Vice President of Risk Adjustment at Network Health, a regional nonprofit payer in Wisconsin. Um, Thank you both for joining me today. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit with you both about sort of the regulatory issues that commercial ACA plans need to watch in 2021. Is there anything in particular you think that we should be worried about? Hey, Gabriel, tell me all of your fears in 15 minutes. (laughs) Um, I think it is going to be, you know, we've, we've started off with a a very exciting new administration, a lot of opportunity for change, you know, coming out of COVID, the need for a thriving and and functional uh, safety net healthcare program the ACA has kind of set up is, has never been more clear. Um, And kind of the parameters around where that program's weak, where, where, where that, where the ACA is kind of weak and where it's strong has also been put into, uh, has also been strongly emphasized. Um, so I guess the thing to start with is that we saw a flood of regulations come out of the Trump administration right at the end. They just kind of went into OMB and said, whatever you got, hit send, put it out, you know, don't, no matter where it is. And uh, then the Biden administration did what everybody knew, which was they put a regulatory hold on everything. Um, so the, normally the biggest regulation is the notice of benefit and payment parameters. This year, it was really interesting because it was a package of everything that the Biden, in the 2022 notice of benefit and payment parameters of the Biden administration probably wouldn't like or has a bit of a, a, a political bias or could be interpreted in a politically biased way. And what was missing was a lot of the essential routine, you know, trend rates and adjusted numbers and risk adjustment coefficients the critical but boring stuff was missing. And my best guess was, even without coordination with the incoming administration, you know, the folks at CMS probably knew that whatever they put out under the Trump administration has a chance of of Congressional Review Act nullification. So you don't know, Congressional Review Act means you can, uh, in the legislature, they can have a motion that just requires a simple majority in the Senate to nullify any regulation that came out within a certain window, which I think is about uh, August 21st to today. And it also prevents the agency from putting out that rulemaking again, which could be a real problem for like rules that are just, hey, this year's last year plus 5%. Well, what do you do if that gets nullified? So they've kind of put this out. I, I don't think it will survive the regulatory freeze. I don't know if it'll be killed through new rulemaking. I don't know if it'd be killed through Congressional Review Act. I do know that we're still waiting on the the less, the more nonpartisan, the, the boring and critical parts of the you notice know, and benefit and payment parameters. And along that line of kind of boring but critical, uh, the, the, the previous comp pod folks mentioned uh, RADV and I'd throw risk adjustment in there of things that are too complicated for most uh, 
folks that aren't up to their eyeballs with them. They don't tend to have much political interference, thank goodness, because when they do, it tends to be, oh, you know, something like risk quarters or a bailout for insurance companies. Well, I can explain to you what risk quarters are, but it'll take 15 minutes and it's not going to be a pithy soundbite. Um, they're not a bailout for insurance. You know, so I think that things like RADV and where how RADV in the commercial market has developed or things like risk adjustment and how that program has evolved in the last four years. That is independent of the politics, but it's still really interesting and it's still kind of moving in, in clear directions. I think we, a lot of the, the sting of RADV was taken out by this, by the recent changes that, that came through in late November. Um, it's not a good audit program, but it is much less bad, and I don't take that for granted. Um, that's a mouthful of, you know, clear regulatory stuff. I got more, but was wondering, Josh, if you wanted to weigh in before I keep barreling forward. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we have the same concerns that the CRA may uh, impact the, some of the ACA regs, like the NDPP that was published. Um, you know, we don't know, we haven't heard anything, but uh, you know, I anticipate changes from the administration that would increase access to care and bolster the ACA uh, from a big picture perspective. You know, if that is people on the ground helping people get enrolled, which is all sort of withered a little bit under the, the previous administration, uh, you know, we expect those changes to occur. Uh, jumping over to the RADV, you're absolutely right. You know, the word that comes to mind is a bit of a mess. Um, and the current changes really should help sort of level that program a little bit so there's not huge swings in the transfer payment adjustments between payers. You know, it's still not perfect, but it certainly should be better. You know, we certainly have been impacted by that in the past, both in the good and the bad. So, uh, you know, we anticipate some some positive changes, at least we're hopeful for that, uh, but it is, it is risky. So, you know, we'll see where they go, but I hope that they do make changes to access, uh, increase access to care, so. Yeah, and, and going off that increase access to care, that, that's where things get really interesting. So um, I, we've been working uh, on kind of trying to model the impact of, uh, of various ACA 2.0 scenarios in terms of enrollment, in terms of impact on uh, in racial inequality, in terms of federal budget cost, and uh, it's there are some startling results. So something that we have been championing that I think has been missing from kind of the federal dialogue is uh, is age adjustment. And I wish I had a better way to brand this because I think everybody hears age adjustment and they're like, oh, you're an insurance company. You're going after young invincible spring breakers or whatever. Of course you are, 20 somethings. That's what you want. And I gotta say, you look at the the age rate chart that the ACA, you know, the default one for the ACA, the lower half of it, you know, the midway point is age 52. That means a 52 year old has more in common with a 21 year old than they do with a 64 year old. Your morbidity increases as much from 52 to 58, actually a little bit more than it does from 21 to 46, all right? So when I'm saying younger, I mean, you know, prime working age. It is not something that takes away from anybody to pay for anybody else. It's not taking from the old to give to the young. But right now, the, the way the subsidy math works is very biased towards kind of the oldest uh, cohort 
of enrollees. You hear a lot about $0 bronze and you know, enhancements from silver loading that disproportionately benefits you know, 58 to 64, 50, you know, or people in their mid 50s or higher. And as a result, the bulk of the uninsured are people who have access to subsidies, but don't get enough subsidy for it to make sense for them to buy insurance. And it's not like them feeling invincible. I mean, I, I don't think anybody on this call is in the young invincible range. And I, but I think most of you are probably in the range of, of the age range that I'm talking about. And it's really just almost a rational economic decision. The subsidies just aren't adequate, you know? And so kind of fixing that age bias, fixing some of that math, leveling things out so that the, you know, the three to one curve that is for the unsubsidized premiums also applies to net premium. We have some very elegant math that we've gotten a bill, HR 6545 introduced in Congress and we've, we're working on a bill uh, champion in the Senate uh, trying to get this introduced because honestly, unless you fix that anomaly, you're going to have a really hard time efficiently improving affordable access to care. And uh, even if you remove the 400% FPL cap, um, you know, I want to fix all the problems. I think this is the one that does the most for the largest number for the least money. I think a lot of people can look at some charts and they confuse the most difficult and expensive problem for the problem that affects the largest number. Because I don't care if you're expected to pay 5% of your income and that just doesn't make sense because you're 30. Or if you're expected to pay 30% of your income and you can't, you know, that doesn't work because it's 30% of your income. Like if it is too much for you, it's too much for you. And if you're not buying insurance, then something's wrong with the system. Okay. so. The other piece, you know, people have kind of complained about this and said, oh, great, Gabriel, you're trying to get everybody into $0 bronze so that they all have $8,000 deductibles. And that's a really valid point. You know, We have a system that, uh, great, you have access, but the way the ACA metal math, the AV math works, um, expects people to pay enormous deductibles. And there's nothing wrong with a deductible as long as you have the assets and the liquidity to use it. You know, high deductible benefit uh, plan designs are the preferred plan for the group market with good reason, because a lot of people in the group market have assets and liquidity and an HSA account to kind of make sure they do make sure that they're thinking about their finances that way to use that design structure. That design structure does not work well for a subsidized population that is not liquid. All right. So how do you fix that? And that problem filters into all kinds of things. Like it filters into the calibration of the risk adjustment model. It filters into um, uh, low uptake in special enrollment periods and partially your enrollment because high deductibles mean that your design, your relative value of your plan decays rapidly as the amount of time you have to hit that deductible shrinks. Um, so how do you fix that? And how do you how do you remove some of that seasonality from plan design? And uh, We've also kind of had some clever ideas that might not even need legislation to kind of re-examine, you know, don't pull the obvious levers. I think the administration went into this saying, gold benchmark, silver benchmark's not enough. Gold is better than silver, gold benchmark. But really, a lot of the times, all that will do is drive more people towards $0 bronze plans because insurance is weird and counterintuitive. But when you go down into the kind of the roots of the system, and you look at the data that's informing, like say, AV calculation, and you think about 
what does that population look like? Does it really reflect the, the people who are buying, you know, using this information to buy? Does it reflect the policy goals initially? We have some ideas about, say, uh, how to redefine standard population for the purpose of calculating actuarial value. I do not have a clever, equipping name for that idea yet. I really hope that I find one. But until then, what it does is it increases plan value, but it does it in a way that also increases design space. It coordinates better with value-based benefit design. It aligns with a consumer expectation of what they think metal levels mean, you know, rather than what actuarial scientists know that they mean, you know, which is kind of more the AV works for the average person. And the average person is half male, half female, 10% diabetic, 8% asthmatic, 2% pregnant, and 0.2% newborn. The average person is an abstract concept that doesn't buy insurance. Ordinary people with underpredictable costs don't really have a, you know, their intuition doesn't line up with the math. When you reach inside the guts of the system, whether it is fixing stuff like the age bias and the subsidy math, or whether it is stuff like um, fixing the, the, the math that filters into AV, rather than a cascade of new problems that keep me employed, it is a cascade of positive interactions. That's pretty cool. I think that we have a long road to get these nerdy concepts through. I am thrilled that I know that there's a lot of really smart people in this administration who have the same enthusiasm for solving these problems that I do. Um, I think that it is, I, but I think the biggest challenge is trying to kind of get people to understand that the obvious lever is not necessarily the best lever. I know that this administration is favoring, you know, capping subsidy, benchmark subsidy at 8.5%, removing the 400% FPL cap. I also know that that's gonna exacerbate racial inequality because, you know, race correlates to age and income. So when you fix the math to benefit the older and higher, not high income, but higher income, you're going to solve for uninsured who tend to be older and, you know, higher income, which also tend to be whiter. Uh, and, you know, you got to start by looking at some of your data and realizing that the bulk of the problem is prime working age, you know, 21 to 54. And it is you know, it is, has, you know, more Hispanic, more black than I think a lot of the policymakers expect. When you don't have that data, you go with your gut, you go with the things that reflect your personal experience. And I think too often the people making the decision, myself included, you know, their personal experience reflects a higher income, you know, predominantly white experience. Um, this is incredibly difficult, uncomfortable stuff to talk about. You know, it's stuff you have to be really careful about. But if we are serious about, and I appreciate uh, some of the comments in the earlier podcast about addressing racial inequality and, and racial disparities, and I, I've been focused on that, you know, then data is your friend. Then, then checking your gut against the data is critical. So I hope that this new administration recognizes the, the, the virtues of data and um, makes the most of this opportunity. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what's keeping me up at night. I wish we had another hour. 
to talk through this. Rise. Um, <laughs> and so I hope to talk more to both of you um, and hear more at Rise National, which is at the end of March, um, because by then maybe things will become clearer in the administration. Thank, um, you, thank you both and have a great afternoon.